0: Please stand as you are able for the reading of today's New Testament lesson from the book of Mark, chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. Now when the Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him, they noticed that some of his disciples were eating with defiled hands, that is, without washing them. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders and they do not eat anything from the market unless they wash it. And there are also many other traditions that they observe, the washings of cups, pots, and bronze kettles. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? He said to them, Isaiah prophesies rightly about you hypocrites. As it is written, this people's honors me me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. You abandon the commandment of God and hold to human tradition. This is the word of God for the people of God.
1: You may be seated. Thank you, Steve, so much. Such a perfect reading of that text. My friends, today we are concluding our summer series called Critiquing Jesus. And as we have traveled with Jesus through the Gospel of Mark, exploring his ministry that often got him in trouble, we've been challenged by those who simply didn't get it and didn't like it what he was up to and who he spent time with, the things he did, and who he simply claimed to be. And We have also come to the end of our associate pastor preaching marathon. We've loved it and we've been honored to share the pulpit and to make space for our senior pastor, Dr. Davis Chapel, to be away on his study and Sabbath leave, but we, like you, have missed him so dearly we will be so glad to welcome him back into the office this week. He's going to be sharing all of the tidbits of knowledge and inspiration and blessing and experience that he received with that exact posture. Now you got to hear this. We're so excited to hear it all, all of these revelations, and we know that all of it is going to be such a blessing to us and to our church. But then I, for one, will immediately begin asking him the running list of questions that I've created over the last month. First of which is whether or not he has landed on a grandpa name. I'm dying to know. I really want to know, but we really are excited to welcome him back next week into the pulpit and back into the office uh, in just a couple days. But first, we've got work to do. It's today's passage. So here's the truth. Our ears have been trained to hear this passage incorrectly. We can't help it. We simply can't help it upon a very first cursory read our pandemic brains are just as horrified as the pharisees that these disciples are eating food with dirty hands that's nasty and it's dangerous we think but we're going to have to do some real work, some mental gymnastics to put coronavirus practice and even the concept of germs and viruses at all out of our heads altogether. because that is not what was in their heads. That's not what this was about. This was about ritual purity, an altogether different thing, different than our reasons for washing our hands before eating. So first we meet the Pharisees and some legal experts from Jerusalem and they've gathered around the disciples, gathered around Jesus and his friends. And I imagine, I have a wild imagination, but I just, I imagine that one of them just kind of, hold up, noticed that these guys had not washed properly and they started calling their buddies over to serve as these additional witnesses to how utterly unclean and unfaithful they were. And I know you're picturing their faces with me, these furrowed brows and these mouths turned downward or gaping open in shock. Their noses are scrunched up and then they're shaking their heads and they're folding their arms. They're kind of turning away as to not be totally associated with these people. It's the appearance of pious shock that we picture in our heads. Their concern wouldn't be surprising. These Pharisees and these scribes strictly followed rules that were passed down by elders rules that instructed them to ritually purify their hands before eating. Now, there was no, surprise, surprise, there was no actual biblical law that said the Jews had to wash their hands before eating. So why did these guys care so much? You thought I wasn't gonna tell you. I'm gonna tell you. It's Exodus 30. It's chapter 30 and it's verse 20. There was this requirement that priests had to wash hands and feet before serving at the altar, before they could eat the holy meat from sacrifices. It said, when they go, the, the priest, into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to make an offering by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. And so when, Genesis, when Exodus 19.6 says of Israel the nation, you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation, a priestly kingdom and a holy nation, they stretched that to mean that all Israelites would act as priests in ritual and therefore all Jews should be washing their hands before eating. That is how strictly they followed this law. And they went to really great lengths to achieve it. The rules were so rigid, so much more, y'all, than the two rounds of row, row, row your boat we do at our house. This was much more complicated. Hands were washed before every meal, even between every course. The hand-washing water had to be kept in these large, special, separate stone jars, and water would be poured down on the wrist from fingertips down to the wrist, and then we're cleansing with the fist of the other hand, and then the water was poured down Down as the fingertips were pointed down and the water ran off. And then the hands were ritually clean, thoroughly purified. And so again, the Pharisees are not concerned about manners, not hygiene, not a virus. They were concerned about being unclean, unsanctified in the sight of God. So when the Pharisees and the legal experts look to Jesus and ask, why are your disciples not living according to the rules handed down by the elders instead of they eat food with ritually unclean hands? He doesn't necessarily hear it as an altogether piety judgment, although there was probably a bit of that. He knew their religious training. Jesus knew these guys. He knew their training in the law, and their devotion to it meant to them that the ritual and the regulations and the tradition and the ceremony were all essential, critical to service to God. It was to them their clear cut way, the way they knew how to honor and please God. But before we get too far down this road, I wanna be sure to name for you that the Pharisees are not villains, okay? We're about two years deep in a superhero phase at my house At some point, it's no longer phase; It's just a lifelong obsession. I don't know. But two years in, and my five-year-old is all in on this. And therefore, the whole family is all in. We are a Marvel family now. And in any storyline, he will find the good guy, and he will find the bad guy, and he will find them in a second. Oh, mommy, he's the bad guy. And they know. They know because of the face and the gear and the stuff. They know because of the darkness that's around them. They know. It's instinct for all of us to know. We need to know who's good and we need to know who's bad so that we feel safe and so that we feel secure, especially safe and secure knowing that we're on the good guy's team because none of us have ever been on the bad guy's team. One would think, though, that if Jesus had any opposition, then whatever team he's on is the good guys and the opponent is the bad guys. It's pretty cut and dry when it comes to Jesus, what team he's on. But this is harder and more nuanced than that. We have language, but we don't really have tone. And so maybe the bad guy isn't that bad. We may instinctively read their question like this. Why are your disciples not living according to the rules that were handed down by the elders and instead they eat their food with their ritually unclean hands? But maybe not. Maybe it was more concern than judgment. What if it was like this? What are your disciples doing? Why are they not living according to the rules that were handed down by the elders, but instead they're eating food with ritually unclean hands? They don't really know Jesus. They don't understand him. And as far as the Pharisees can tell, he's leading this group of would-be faithful Jews down a really dangerous path, a path that pays no respect to the elders of their tradition, to them, this law was a gift to them to order their lives as God's people. Their observance of the law was to serve as a witness to glorify God. So Jesus and his disciples' carelessness might run the risk of threatening not only their own sanctification, but also their witness to all the nations. But even as they've attempted to live so very faithfully, they've stumbled into this scorekeeping even indicting Jesus and these Jews who weren't obedient in the same exact way that they were. No matter their tone, they've accused Jesus of not following the law and maybe even acting as he was above the law. They're suggesting that Jesus can't really be a religious teacher if he's not going to teach the rules. I'm probably taking it a little too easy. On the Pharisees, maybe they were postured as Jesus' enemies, just set out to embarrass him. And Jesus might have felt a little hot when he first heard their question. After all, how could anyone accuse these men of being unfaithful? They've left everything behind to follow Jesus. They've put down their nets, they've put down their careers, they've walked away from their families and their lives and their security, their homes, everything. And they said yes to following. So, of course, they're faithful. But Jesus knows who he is, and he knows the heart of his disciples, and he even knows the heart of these dialogue partners here. So he addressed them. Jesus is smart. He addresses them first with wisdom from the prophets, which is a way of speaking their language. He challenges this appeal they made to the elders with an appeal to a superior authority, the law and the prophets. He quotes Isaiah 29, 13. The Lord said, because these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their worship of me is human commandment learned by rote. And he interprets that prophetic word, you abandon the commandment of God and hold on to human tradition. So just as I claim to not at all know the tone of the Pharisees, neither do I know Jesus' tone, but he was probably, we are probably quick to make it again a condemning tone, a snap back at them, but it could have just as easily been this oh you see you've forgotten god's command to love god's command to serve god and neighbor that's the most important thing you abandon the commandment of god and hold on to human tradition he's reminding them of the essence of the law not the law but the essence of the law and they received that in the form of the shema hear O lord Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Keep these words that I am commanding you today on your heart. This is just after Israel had received the Ten Commandments, the law, and Moses was sure to boil it down. He found the essence for them. He found the purest form. Love the Lord your God with everything you are. Jesus doesn't condemn their beliefs. He values their role in Judaism. He honors the importance of their law and understands that they are needed to help people feel secure. He knows they aren't just being petty, but he's also going to challenge their ability to be faithful to their creator when they have grown so dangerously close to worshiping the law and the doctrine and the rules He isn't gonna take it easy on them. He is honest and frank. He does suggest that not all Pharisees, but certainly these particular questioners have hearts that are far from God. That they have taken things really a bit too far. That they have become a bit too strict, too rigid, and they've been blinded by the rules. They've become finger pointers. When we're kids, we rely on our parents. And we rely on the grownups in our lives to teach us how to be good neighbors. We learn to be kind and to be polite so that our actions, by our actions we grow to do good and to not do harm. Table manners are of course important. We don't chew with our mouths open and we wait to be excused and we put our phones away at the table. And one of the first social lessons we have to teach little ones is not to point their fingers at people. Kids are naturally curious. They mean no harm, usually by their questions and their observations, but if they aren't careful, they can hurt. When we were small, my brother and I, my little brother once pointed at my grandmother's face and said, hey, Nan, how many wrinkles do you have? Over time... We learn the nuances. But the baseline rule as children is that we don't point our fingers at people. And we certainly don't make our maybe critical observations out loud. So I wonder why we forget. Why are we so quick to point fingers now? You do it. I do it. We all do it. We're quick to whip out that pointing finger and aim it at people that we disagree with and those behaviors that we don't like and those decisions that inconvenience us or disappoint us. Sometimes our finger pointing even becomes its own kind of fun sport. Simone Biles is a household name, especially this week, but before she was the best gymnast in the entire world, in all of history, she was just a kid, a kid whose mom was unable to care for her a kid who was hungry a lot, a kid who floated in and out of foster care with her siblings until she was adopted by her biological mother's parents. She began her training at eight years old after discovering gymnastics by chance on a field trip. Today, she holds 31 Olympic and world championship medals. She's the most decorated American gymnast of all time. She's had skills named after her. She has inspired children all over the world to try gymnastics or to just pursue their dreams in spite of difficult starts to life. At only 21 years old, she had the courage to expose publicly that she had been abused just as many other gymnasts of her time were, and she inspired and gave voice to victims of abuse everywhere. She's an extraordinary talent and a brave young woman, and so... When our superhero withdrew from the Tokyo Olympics this week, people lost their minds. Immediate responses were that she was letting her country down, that Michael Jordan would have never quit in game seven of the NBA finals, that she isn't tough enough. Comparing her to gymnasts who had pushed through physical pain and broken bones before, Simone Biles, a 24-year-old athlete whose brain is not even yet fully developed has fingers all over the world pointing at her, accusing her of being weak and whiny and selfish and childish. But Simone is tough. She is courageous. She knows her limits and she knows when it's time to say no. Simone Biles explained that her body and mind had gotten out of sync. She had a case of what's called the twisties in gymnastics And when she was flying and twisting her body multiple times at truly dangerous heights with absolutely no safety net, she couldn't find herself in the air. She didn't know where she was in the air. So she didn't know where she was going to land, and I cannot imagine How frightening that would have been. Facing immense pressure, a mind and a body that had grown out of sync, COVID restrictions that prevented her parents from being there for the first time in her career. It had to be terrifying. For Simone Biles to have competed in the Olympics would have been risking her very life. We instead pointed our fingers at her and said, get back out there, you're the best in the world, so act like it. It's been heartbreaking to watch. And it's reminded me of a lesson from my mentor, Dr. Kenda Creasy-Dean, who taught me the essence of youth ministry. Youth ministry, she taught, is about hand-holding and finger-pointing. And she would argue that youth ministry isn't just done by professional youth ministers paid by churches, and I would argue that too. Youth ministry rather is done by any adults, including parents who claim a Christian faith and know and love a teenager. So that's all of us. Your calling is to walk alongside teenagers and hold their hands, she would say. Assure them that they are going through nothing alone and that you are on their team. Show up when they are scared and sad and excited and nervous and just be there. Just be there and hold their hands. And as you hold their hand, Point them toward where God is already at work in their lives. Point them toward signs of God's presence and love. Point them toward people who celebrate them and love them and honor them. Point them toward God's mercy for people and God's grace that is for anyone and we haven't done anything to earn it. Point them to bursts of God's joy in places where God's given them gifts that intersect with the needs of God's world. Be a hand holder and be a finger pointer. Just a couple of days before Simone Biles withdrew, I had shown my two children montages of gymnastics achievements. They sat in front of our TV as she flipped and flew and twisted and landed with their mouths just hanging open. She was, to my five and three-year-old, a real-life superhero. And so when she stepped away from the Olympics, I wanted to also tell them about that especially my three-year-old daughter, who would have Simone as a sign to her one day of what girls are capable of. So I held her in my lap one night this week and I told her about Simone Biles and how her body was capable of doing the most amazing things. I let her know that Simone Biles is tiny. She's like 4'9 or 4'10 and she can do incredible things, things that we've never seen before. and that she wasn't feeling good and she needed to say no to competing to win the gold medal. And I told her about how brave Simone was and that she knew herself and she knew her limits. And I even told her about sometimes it's extra hard for girls to be brave, but she did it. Simone did it. And mommy thinks that Simone Biles is amazing. And do you know what Abby said? She said, okay, now will you sing me five songs? (laughs) Abby's three. She does not get it yet. But just in case she one day hears someone else pointing a finger and saying mean things, I want her to remember us snuggling together at bedtime and saying nice things. Handholding and finger-pointing isn't just the work of, minist- of youth ministry. It is the calling on all of us. Every one of us is called to this work. So, you know, Jesus didn't actually stop teaching after verse eight, he didn't stop after he suggested that the Pharisees and the scribes had sacrificed God's commandment for the rules of humans. He kept teaching. And in verse 15, which Steve didn't read, he said this, listen to me. Listen to me all of you and understand, this is no, there is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what can defile. Here's what he means, stop worrying so much about every little teeny tiny thing, every little rule, what we eat and how we eat it. Don't be so concerned with tradition and how things have always been done, so concerned that you forget the basics, the essence, the purest form, that you are a beloved child of God and that you are called to be a witness of God's love in this world. In this radical moment, Jesus is proclaiming that the observance of laws cannot alone make a person pure and clean and good. What matters is what's inside the heart and the works of the heart. It's output that matters. What are we putting out into this world? Are we putting out kindness or are we putting out cruelty? Are we putting out compassion or are we putting out condemnation? Are we putting out affirmation or are we putting out rejection Jesus is flipping this upside down for them it's not about what we eat or how we eat it it's about what we do and how we treat people it's about the condition of our hearts and I think that if our hearts are oriented rightly around God's love and mercy for all of us and all God's children then we will spend less time pointing our finger at people who we believe are getting it wrong or pointing out all the things about them that fall short of our expectations for success and faithfulness and pointing at choices that we just disagree with. And instead, we will take the time when our hearts are right to slow down and take their hand inside ours and join them for the journey. We will begin to be a people who assure our neighbors that they do not have to face life alone. That we will be there as a friend and a companion and a co-traveler on the path of discipleship that someone is praying for them, that someone will remind them that they are beloved and forgiven and free. And as we walk along together, we can point toward the places where God is at work, where God has given strength to know and claim our limits, where God has been present even in dark seasons when we felt all alone. We can point out that it was God who opened our eyes to our destructive habits. We can point that it was God bringing peace and hope and love and joy. We are our own worst critics and we need ones holding our hands to point out the gifts that God has given us and how we might participate in changing the world. We are going to be receiving communion today, safely in our pews still, but as we prepare, to metaphorically approach this table, I wanna invite you into a reset. We have all of us stumbled in to pointing our fingers at someone or something we didn't understand or agree with or simply don't like. So as we prepare to receive this meal, we remember that even if our finger pointing has been held in our hearts, even if our finger pointing has been held in our minds, Jesus knows what lurks there. And yet Jesus loves each of us still. Today we can put away our accusing, our blaming, our judging fingers, we can tuck them away. The fingers that we point at ourselves, the fingers we point at others. Today we can release the hardness of our hearts and the words that tear down and the anger that we've held so tightly to. And today we are opening up our hands to hold on to our neighbors and friends and family and strangers and teenagers and children and we are setting loose our fingers to point to the amazing wonders of a God who loves every part of who we are, who loves every part of every one of us and invites us to be made whole in our hearts and our lives at this very table. Amen.